This episode was edited by Deadset Podcasting. If you want your podcast to sound this good, check out deadsetpodcasting.com forward slash services. Get the sound you're chasing. Hey guys, Josh here. Today is not a standard episode of On The Bubble Podcast. We're right in the middle of trying to get the voiceovers, the audio clips, all the stuff together for an episode of Farscape. So an episode covering the fan campaign to try and save Farscape after the insane, insane season four cliffhanger. So I won't spoil any of that now, but what I am going to share today is a mostly uncut interview from 2018, mid-2018, that I was fortunate enough to do with Anthony Simcoe. So if you're not familiar with who Anthony Simcoe is, or you can't quite place the name, Anthony actually played Cardago on Farscape, the much-loved character, one of my favourite characters other than Aaron Sun. So I was going to cut it all up because this audio is actually from another podcast that I do called Punching Sideways. Other than cutting out some of the little pieces that aren't relevant to On The Bubble podcast and you guys, the audience, I've kind of left it uncut because he does talk a lot about Farscape and that's super interesting stuff. You might not have heard some of the things that Anthony talks about in quite this much depth anywhere else. But the other thing is he's so fascinating as a human. He's also one of the people that was in maybe the most loved Australian movie of all time within Australia itself, The Castle. So we talk about The Castle as well, which if you've never seen and you may never go and see it, it features Eric Banner and several other emerging and very established Australian actors. It's from the 90s, and Anthony was one of the stars of The Castle. So this is On The Bubble Podcast. The next episode will be our full breakdown of the Save Farscape campaign. Okay, guys, let's maybe jump somewhere over the wormhole and back to 2018 with Anthony Simcoe, star of Farscape. Here we go. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Anthony Simcoe, who is a former actor, as per his Twitter account, in some pretty amazing different projects that we'll talk about today one being a personal favorite of mine he's also doing a doctorate and has a consulting firm which i think we'll talk about a little bit about what that does just as we get started today and yeah i'm really excited to have him on the show he's someone i've been following for a long time probably in secret one of those stalker fans and also just from talking to him now for the last 15 20 minutes incredibly nice dude so welcome to the show anthony and can you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now because we kind of go reverse chronological on this show to start out. <laughs> uh, well, thanks very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great honour to have a chat with someone and meet someone you don't know. Um, so uh, what am I doing at the moment? So I left my career as an actor, oh, gee, I want to say probably 10 odd, odd years ago. And at the moment, what I do is I run a consultancy in leadership and communication skills. So I've got a global practice doing that, uh, working sort of boots to suits, really. So working sometimes with board level people, CEOs, CFOs of large companies right down and across organizations into, you know, various, various roles doing, um, helping people really get along and communicate better. So it's a really interesting fascinating career because every single day is different. Every single business you walk into is different. And 
I've got a real passion for helping people get along. I'm one of those lucky people who, who found their thing. <laughs> and, and, and really, I always said to people, I was very, very average actor, but, um, but very, very, uh, hopefully I've got some skills around, around teaching that I like to you know, share with people. So that's a, a very meandering way of saying what I do at the moment. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know about the average actor thing. We'll talk about that, I guess. <laughs> How does what you're doing now, I guess from two directions, how do you think that your history in the acting profession influences what you do now? And is there any cross-section or sorry, crossover between the communication consulting and your PhD research? Because I noticed there's a storytelling element to that. For sure, absolutely. The the uh, my work in the arts absolutely is informing my doctoral work very, very closely. And I'm actually using the doctorate to bring more of that arts background into my practice because at the moment I don't I don't bring a lot. Um, there's a lot of fantastic businesses in my space who employ actors to come in and do role plays and enact things. And I'm not, I'm not really the, that type of business. So for example, I don't do, well, I don't do role plays in any, in any of my, in any of my courses, for, for example. And I guess that stems from a long time ago, while I was still acting, when I was just looking to pay the rent, um, I worked for this company that employed actors and what they did is they teamed you up with a usually a psychologist or an expert in adult learning and they would bring the actor in, let's say they were doing conflict management, and they would bring the actor in to be the angry manager or break down crying. They would go, oh, you can cry on cue, oh, you can yell on cue. And I found that work um, quite boring. I used to call it the train monkey work. You'd come in, you'd be the train monkey, you'd cry on cue, you'd leave. But in those early days, when I looked at the other person, the psychologist or the adult learning specialist, actually running the conversations, digging into root causes, really trying to have this very positive influence on people's working lives or lives, very, very quickly, lightning in a bottle for me. I went, I don't want to be the trained monkey. I, I really want to be that person. So I've really spent the last 20 odd years changing seats, if you like, from, from being the actor to being the person leading that conversation and just trying to help people get along better, be more productive, improve their effectiveness, reduce conflict, all that, all that type of stuff is really the meat and potatoes of what I do each day, and, uh, and I really enjoy that. I think the, there are elements of, uh, of the arts that, that play into that, if, even if indirectly. The idea of preparation, strong confidence, the value of understanding that when you create a performance, you can start physically, you can start psychologically, you can start emotionally. It's very similar to solving a, a business problem. Sometimes it's strategic, sometimes it's emotional around change management. Sometimes it's just the simple ability to be able to understand that when you're communicating with someone, you're using your body as well as your mind. And those type of paradigms or perspectives that are quite common in the arts are sometimes new ideas to, to, people, in, to people in business. So that, that background helps in that sense. Something that comes to mind, obviously you have what on the surface looks like two opposing environments and almost the archetype would be two different kinds of people. Do you get any pushback from either side, even from the art side, of how applicable something like having an acting background could be? 
in a business education setting because it doesn't seem immediately apparent that everybody's a human being and you're spending a great chunk of your life at work. So we haven't yet removed the human beings from our day-to-day work. <laughs> They're still there. <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, so could you maybe just let us know what do you do when you come into a work environment where the just say the CEO and the board level team maybe aren't quite sure how your background you know, could help them? Is there those situations? Look, it's yeah, absolutely. It's always very interesting, especially in an Australian context. When I'm working in Australia, the job that always goes before me or with me, which is both both helpful and harmful, is the castle. Yeah. Even though it's a long, even though it's a long time ago now, I certainly appreciate as it as a calling card because it's a, a film that that you know a lot of people hold near and dear. It's one of those films that people watch watch time and time again. So it, it is a great calling card, and I certainly appreciate that. And certainly, um, always, am very grateful for um, the relationship that people have with that film. Uh, but then I'm not Steve Kerrigan, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and coming into that room, it is about as quickly as I can establishing that credibility in the bridge from you know having been an actor, particularly playing one one character that they might identify me with despite all the other work I did and very, very quickly bringing the smarts and the insight into the room while, while being very, very humble. I mean, for me, adult learning is not really about teaching people. It's about facilitating conversations and the role of the facilitator is not to instruct. It's to sequence what conversations happen when and the facilitator's role also is to bring voices into the conversation that aren't in the room. In other words, how do you bring valid and reliable research on your topic into the conversation in the room? Not as a thou shalt, not as a thou must, but just as another voice so that all the adults in the room can synthesize the external voices, the internal voices, and then decide what they want to do going forward. So for me, it's about the chops. I guess the the difficulty of facilitating is, is... bringing those other voices in, sequencing those conversations. But the better you do that, then the people leave behind the fact that you are an actor very, very quickly. Because usually you're there not to entertain, or you're definitely never there to entertain them. You're there to solve a problem or enhance some capability or enrich the culture of the business. And after some lovely introductions and pleasantries and, oh, you're that guy, you, gee, you look a lot older, <laughs> all that stuff. Surprising. Then it's, yeah, 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 then it's, then it's, then it's, then it's uh, down to business. It's very interesting. Um, uh, my acting friends uh, really don't get what I do. Lovely as, you know, they're amazing, living their amazing, incredible careers. But I suspect a lot of them think that I, going to places and talk about body language and voice and and um, you know, role plays and speaking confidently and <laughs> things like that, yeah. which is not exactly what's going on. It's pretty interesting by the sounds of it. And for the lack of a better segue, I guess, the 800-pound uh, gorilla did come up, the castle, which is not actually why, why I know you, to be honest, I have to admit, mate. <laughs> that's, that's not – That's. I mean, obviously I'd seen the film as a kid and I didn't really make that connection until much many, many years later. I don't want you to have to talk about things you've talked about a million times before, but you did reference that that movie itself somehow, through its own brilliance, 
has an enduring rewatchable quality and also a cultural relevance that few films have ever managed to capture in Australia. And what I want to know is you said you had some foresight about what you maybe wanted to do post-acting, that maybe I could move into this space but not be the person that does role play. Did you have any foresight as a group or as an individual about how much cultural impact that film was going to have while you're in production? Is there any way to know that? I don't think there is any way to know that. And you work on so many projects that you believe in heart and soul and the only people that watch them are you, your mum and your dog <laughs> when you think about the dog's Australian asleep. film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is it's, it's a complicated issue as to why that is so. It's not always down to the quality of the of the end product. It's you know, being in this Australian landscape and market share and competing with Hollywood and cinema distribution and all, all that type of stuff. But in terms of whether we knew, absolutely not. It was at that stage, of, well, not at that stage, it was a very, very low budget production shooting for a very, very short period of time. So how would you know? But I guess the every single interaction that I had with Working Dog then and since is they are just, they are off the chart, crazy talented people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I have to say, Jeeves sounds very sucky, but, but very, just so nice. And so, oh gee, I would hate to be described as nice. Are they nice? Of course they're nice, but they're, they're lovely. What I mean is they're welcoming, they're friendly, they're embracing, they're accepting all these types of things that create an environment for creativity to flourish, they're onto it. They they really, really get it. They get that to do something creative, it takes an environment, not an instruction. And I think they worked very, very hard on on that set in a very short period of time to create the right environment where we felt empowered and creative and that we could get through it because we were just shooting that so, so, so fast. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it and then when it did go large, it was it was it was a surprise. It was a surprise. I don't think anyone saw it coming and it seemed to I'm I I'm not sure, but my recollection is that it just seemed to grow and grow and grow. And then you think, okay, well, it's been, it's done. It was, it was a, it was a, a success. So now it sort of goes into everyone's um, deep and darkest memories. But it just seemed to be one of those, or still seems to be one of those Australian films that people pull out time and time again. Like for example, in my family, it's the vacation films. Yeah, yeah. So when I was growing up, it would be. Chevy Chase and Vacation would be the film on the holidays. The whole family would pull out <laughs> and there you are watching Chevy Chase again year after year after year after year after year and everyone enjoys the fact that you know the story. <laughs> you don't need to be surprised by it. Everyone enjoys just revisiting that world and that family again. And I've been told many times that The Castle is that film for their family. They pull it out every Christmas or they take it with them on holidays or it's not a film they want to watch once and leave behind that they can revisit it time and time again. And that, that is just such a absolute privilege 
to be a part of. I, I feel just so incredibly lucky to have been a part of something that means something to people. So, yeah, I, I, I'm very proud, very humbled. Yeah, can't, can't still can't believe it. All these all decades, 20 years last year. Yeah. So 20, 20 years later, I still have to pinch myself. Because for me also, those working dog guys were, I was fan. So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd worked by then with Hollywood stars and famous people and this, that, and the other, and then that's, that's all well and good. But when I got to, when I won the job and got to go and work with them, I was starstruck because Frontline, I just thought, was absolute comedy genius. <laughs> and then there I was working with the, the Frontline team. And they were so friendly and, and wanted the best for me and wanted the best for the production. And it was just, yeah, I, I couldn't speak highly enough of the whole experience. I've heard many people, particularly in radio, the Tony Martins of the world, mention that he really had no concept of what a creative work ethic was until he met the guys that would go on to be working dog. Like he just had no concept of just how much attention to detail a good joke needs and the pacing of things and just how much like raw material you have to go through to create something that, you know, has a lasting comedic impact. Did you get that vibe off them sure. from day one that they were just different level work work ethic, those guys? Yeah, and they wanted to work things through with you. I mean, I always remember because Rob Sitch directed The Castle and I wanted to play my character like a serial killer. <laughs> like he was just going <laughs> to absolutely kill <laughs> every, anyone who came near his, his family. And there are, there are elements of that still still in there. But I just remember having this really long and deep and rich conversation with him where, you know, sometimes it's uh, for a director, it's not best to layer and layer and layer and layer and layer. It's best just to be simple and clear and just find what is essential in any part. So uh, you're not chasing complexity, you're chasing, and you're not even chasing simplicity, you're chasing the essential in the role. And I remember him saying, no, no, this, this, film is essentially about a group of people who despite their environment, what happens to them, everything, these people love one another. Yeah. And if we could just get to that that part where moment for moment, whether you go to taste, to jail, to a game show, to a court, the glue that binds these people is this deep, enduring enduring love amongst one another. If we can get that right, then each character we paint will be will be in the right place. And that that was he knew what he wanted. He knew the story he wanted to tell. He knew those characters just down to his, his DNA. So and then and then what I also love about it is that those guys let you one of my frustrations with it's probably to do with my lack of talent really, but uh, one of one of my frustrations with working in Australian film and TV is that there's not many directors who want you to transform. Huh. Like they, they, they want the character essentially to walk through the door. Do you know what I mean? So I'll yeah. Anthony Simcoe like that. So you bring him in and that's the person for that. And I was always more interested in not funny walks and, you know, and, and putting on crazy voices. I mean, although I did get to do that in Farscape, yeah. but I, I was interested in, 
in being different. I was intro- I was the type of actor that wanted you to go, oh my God, are you that guy? <laughs> so different to, 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 to how you are in that role. So Rob and, and the working dog guys let me, really let me transform. They let me, just simple physical things like keeping my mouth open all the time with Steve Kerrigan and slowing down my beat reactions and the way that I speak and all these types of things. They, they embraced that sense of transformation. They expected me to, to be someone different when they cried action. I really enjoyed that, that sense of them allowing me to do that. It's very difficult because if you do it and you don't maintain any sense of authenticity, then you just look like you're bunging on something and it's, it's dreadful. So I get why people are scared of it. But I think there are some, some actors that relish that and thrive and they're going to deliver their best performances um, uh, like that. Um, I think Lockie Hume's like that and I just can't think of any others off the top, off the top of my head. But when they're allowed to do it, they're, they're fantastic. And uh, I wasn't fantastic, but I was one of those actors that wanted to, that didn't want you to see, oh, that's Anthony, that's roll, hit, call out action, and that's the guy you'll get. I always wanted to be different. Yeah. So the directors. Poor, I mean, t- poor Tony Martin. Sorry, excuse me. Again. <laughs> yeah. I was just saying, poor Tony Martin. There's a, there's, a, um, there's a scene at the end of the castle where we've, uh, you know, the court case is over and it's all happy days and you get to keep the house and. It's like a montage thing where we're having a having a party, you know, at the back back at the house. And I and I think we spent a couple of hours shooting that. And I was um, grouped with with Tony during that whole that whole time. So for, I think for a couple of hours, that lovely poor man had to put up with me like a fawning. Oh my god, you're so awesome! Oh my god, you're so awesome! <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, you're so awesome! <laughs> Pretty much how I'd be if I met him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but he's very gracious. That was, you know, like the working dog guy, just very gracious, lovely, lovely, lovely guy. So again, a couple of hours for me just to 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 stand and meet and and, and get to hang out with someone that I just idolised. So that was uh, that was a great experience for me. We we will move on in a second to Farscape, which is probably why I wanted Anthony on the show today. That show was very special to me. But just getting back to what you were saying about that there's few directors that will let you move too far out of what they expect. Is that due to a potential, if you have too big a range of emotional reaction or too many unpredictable reactions that your whole character can be compromised and you may not react, you know, with a similar amount of uh, weirdness or a similar contrarian opinion or what is it exactly that they're afraid of? I think everyone's chasing this subjective sense of authenticity. And whether you're doing a play or whether you're doing a film, you know, you'll hear actors and directors, you know, throw around words like honest, real, authentic, synonyms for that. But at the end of the day, it's an artifice. You you have to move within shot. You have to move on the stage. You you are constructing the illusion of authenticity. Uh, the illusion of reality. And that's a, it's a really difficult tightrope to walk. There's tonal and stylistic elements to that. It's why Kramer in Seinfeld is allowable, but Kramer in The Godfather isn't, you know? And, yeah. and the, the, the world creates its own sense of artificial reality. And 
lots of Australian productions, to my mind, um, reduce the options that the actors can take into that, into just being a straight mirror and reflection of what's going on around them. You end up with very low stakes, very uninteresting characters in my view. Yeah. You, you, you're not going to breed any, or you're not going to develop any Al Pacino's or Robert De Niro's or whatever in, in that environment. It's interesting. Even when our big stars get the opportunity to go and work and make larger um, productions, it's, it's interesting to know as an outsider, I would never presume to know or, speak for them but it is interesting when these very famous Australians go and work they often do chase these sort of transformative transformative type roles and even when they come back to Australia you know to to spread the love that their fame can give the Australian film industry they're brought back to this ultra realism again it's very very interesting but even with all that fame and power that the Australian storytelling style seems to drag them back there. But anyway, I, I, I really I really don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm sure if I, if I listen back to this, I'll, I'll be cringing left, right, and center. Yeah. Well, it's, in the end, you could say what – you could claim the same thing that all of the big bankers claimed in the financial crisis. It's just an opinion when it comes to exactly. – when, when they were rating all those CMOs for – Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah. Dodgy yeah. Just to go back, <laughs> I wouldn't exactly say low stakes would describe or lack of ambition would describe Farscape. Completely the opposite to either of those things. And I won't go too fanboyish because Anthony's so down to earth just from speaking to him today, I don't think I possibly could. I don't mean this with any sense of hyperbole. Farscape to me is the most important television show that I think has ever been made in Australia. And there's a few reasons for that. And I'm sure they're not, this isn't an original thought or anything of this, the like, but just if you look at the concepts and the things that the undercurrents of what was being dealt with in Farscape, from racial and class issues to Cold War style politics with somewhere like Earth representing in Australia, and you've got different nations representing <laughs> like Russia or the USSR and and America, the ideas of uh, disarmament. There's so much going on in Farscape that it just really was universal level stuff that I don't think, and I might go back to the Australian film industry again or television industry, maybe not making brave choices to tackle stuff like that. But did you know at the time that you were going to be part of a sci-fi show that actually dealt with stuff at that level? Because, I mean, it hadn't really happened before. I was hoping, I was hoping, and, and, and to link back to what we were talking about with regards to this simple idea around transformative performances, not just from the acting perspective, but from the directing, the lighting, the costume, all the elements of filmmaking. I think that Farscape just allowed all these storytellers who wanted to live beyond this ultra-realism just to feel released. So the sense of energy and excitement from all these Australian storytellers who had been making wonderful shows, but, you know, they're water rats and they're, uh, I mean, terrific shows, but still Aussie naturalism, uh, to, to come into this environment that, that science fiction allows you to you know, dream into, create into, everyone just felt so, so, yeah, released, excited. Uh, there was just such a sense of 
energy and it, it, it was probably the most exciting time of my life to the kickoff of that show was you just felt that anything was possible and also the the types of budgets that you'd worked on on Australian films and television shows were just dwarfed by the resources that we had at Fox Studios to to be able to to create that world so there was a creative potential and then in terms of what sci-fi can do to do allegorical if you like storytelling and to take things beyond what other genres can do, we always knew it had that potential. And then when we met the writers, um, they, they took it where they did, and that was that was very, very exciting. And that's the great thing, I think, about being in science fiction, because it can be, you're not you know, bound by the laws of Earth, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess there's a lot of things I want to ask about the show, but I guess specifically... If I, if I could remember. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that'll come down to that. I guess the one thing that also I think sets Farscape apart to a certain degree from a lot of Australian television is the fact that it continuously finds and refreshes its audience and there's new people that get sucked up into that world completely and I see them talking about it on Twitter or Facebook as it's something they've just discovered and it's just as magical for them as people that may have seen it in its broadcast run or like me, I watched the whole thing front to back in one go on DVD a couple of years after it finished. Oh, wow. It's, it's still finding and bringing people in close to 20 years later and I think it's because of that quality and the types of things you were dealing with when if you were to describe the show to someone now, it's a sci-fi show that deals with big universal things, which there's been others since, Battlestar Galactica, etc. There's the Jim Henson puppetry (laughs) part of it that maybe doesn't make sense to people until you see how amazing that element is. It's set in a different part of the galaxy. It doesn't scream that type of show that would bring people in like it still does, and it comes down to the quality and the fans. I mean, it's probably hard to look back then and then forecast the future, but all those little bits of detail obviously have a big impact on that, I would assume, from the costume to the puppetry and obviously the scripting and the love story, et cetera. What's it like to be sucked up in that? Because <laughs> obviously at the time you're focused on your job. It's it's amazing. What, what's what's f- the first impression you get, my, my strongest memory is just the complexity of doing it. Just just the, the amount of elements that needed to come together just to get a shot were beyond anything that I'd ever experienced before. And some of them are sort of obvious from things like having six people up, uh, operate Rigel, you know, the puppet and all the things that it took to have those puppeteers in the right place at the right time doing the right things while, while you were interacting with them. But that's sort of obvious. It was being consistent in, again, finding the acting style, finding the style of the world, because the ambitions for Farscape, which I think we partly achieved, uh, was to create its own universe in the same way that sort of the Star Wars movies create their own universe. We wanted to get this real broad sense of different systems and planets and politics and races and all that type of thing. We wanted to feel diverse and rich. Uh, so uh, that took a lot of work and a, and a lot of 
a lot of effort. So just being around that was incredible. For example, I'd never been around a creature shop before. I mean, I remember my my very best friend who I went um, through NIDA with, who's passed away now. His name, he was an amazing actor called Danny Rigney. And he got to play the sort of hyena character in Ireland, Dr. Moreau, with, um, with Marlon Brando that they shot in Queensland. And I remember just listening to his stories in awe just when he was telling us about life casting and getting the makeup on. And it just seemed like another world. And then to be thrown in, thrown into that world. I mean, I had my life casting done in, in London. I got the job and I had I was in the middle of directing a play and I had to be in London in five days' time. And it just seemed like oh the world. And there I am covered in all this alginate and goo and <laughs> whatever and then back on a plane back to Australia and and all those little things and just teams and teams and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that had to pull it together. It was just a sense of awe and wonder at, wow, who's got their arms around this? Because you can see how it could very easily get out of control and not have that sense of cohesiveness. And and to be fair, um, I think that we lost that sense of cohesiveness often. And that's not me trying to talk it down. I think it's it's honest, you know what I mean? That um, you know, sometimes that, that just didn't all pull together. But then the, the justification or the excuse, if you like, is, wow, we, we were juggling a lot of balls in the air. And and when it worked, it worked. And when it didn't, unfortunately, they all crashed down around our feet. Sorry, Anthony, do you mean that that more scene to scene? Because there are certain scenes, particularly in the first season, where it is a little bit too wacky and crazy and like mind-meldy. But then five minutes later, you could have some emotional scene that's so well acted that it could bring people to tears. I mean, there is... I agree. There is a yeah. wide range in there. Look, I, I, I am in the minority and I, I fully accept this, um, but the wackier Farscape got, in my humble opinion, the, the less successful it got. I would have to agree. They're probably my, my least favourite moments. Scorpius as bunny rabbits and things like that. I think that we were mistaking um, zaniness for creativity and I, and I, I humbly... Uh, just felt that they were our least successful moments. It was moments of grounded relationships uh, between people that were that were most successful. And I think one of the mistakes we made was trying to we often equated zany with creative, and it really wasn't that creative. It was just zany. But that's me sounding like I'm a down on the show. I'm pretty incredibly proud of it. I think we did some wonderful things, but um, I think they were better when they were grounded in um, that, particularly that obviously that great relationship between um, uh, Ben and Claudia. Were they just they they anchored anchored the show, and that was that was we were very lucky to have their you know talents doing that for us. Their story arc certainly transcended some of what may be seen in retrospect as the weaker episodes. There was enough. Yep, emo- there was enough emotional investment there to pull you well beyond the weaker moments. And could some of that have been really, Anthony? In retrospect, no one had ever really, outside of maybe a film context, ever tried to bring so much together into a television program. There's always going to oh, be like there was no real standard to. We need to be this consistent. You were kind of setting the bar. I mean, that might be completely hyperbole. But I mean, we were at Fox, felt, and yeah. I won't name them, but we had these major Hollywood films around us, and we had more sound stages. 
<laughs> and it's, it's not, you know, my, my, my car's bigger than your car type thing, but it just, I'm just mentioned that by means of the scale, yeah. how big it was and how complex and the scale and what we were trying to, what we we're trying to, to bring together. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that, that was a big learning curve for every, everyone. And I think the real, look, the fans will always feel, and, and I'm not disagreeing that the store, that the show will have a legacy in terms of the show itself and the storytelling and, and its place sort of, if you like, in science fiction television. But when I started acting, everyone used to talk about uh, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The fact that the ABC just did so much to develop talent in the Australian film and television industry. So along with the Australian film, television, radio school and the ABC, you saw a lot of people get their technical chops through that because they had a lot of sort of um, development programs, if you like, through that. And, that. and then as cuts come, then the ABC becomes less and less able, able to do that. Because of the complexity of Farscape, it was an amazing training ground for incredible artists. It's not for nothing that, you know, Damien and Elka won the Academy Award for makeup. Where, where did they get their first big break on Farscape? And the same goes for the directors, all directing around the world or running courses at afters or having these amazing careers. The actors are doing well. The technicians are doing, are doing well. Everyone appreciated the fact that that complexity meant that you had to solve problems, you had to grow, you had to keep up or you were left behind. So the people that lasted on that show really developed their skill sets in, in amazing, amazing ways. So that for me is, um, if we're talking about Australian film and television, it's actually that behind-the-scenes legacy that Farscape has left because every single person that worked on that um, just learnt an inc- a, a great deal. Part of the great reason of having Anthony on today is we can get a perspective that as a fan, oh, you are right, it has a, a special place, but there's no way of really knowing what it did for the people beyond the show itself. And obviously I recall there were certain conversations that, Peter Jackson had with different people when he was first debating and arguing about how much of Lord of the Rings he wanted to film on location in New Zealand. And part of his reasoning at the time was because he knew there was people there that had already made all their mistakes making all these other shows like Hercules and Xena and all these shows which are obviously much, much lower down the totem pole in terms of quality. But he knew that there was a group of people there that had kind of paid their dues and they'd made some of those mistakes. Like it's just... For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and just to know that, obviously, yeah. I mean, just the visual elements of Farscape, it's probably why, again, why it's quite rewatchable that once you get over the zaniness of certain aspects and they kind of all blend into the background, it's a very beautiful universe visually. So it doesn't seem dated in that way like some other shows would. I guess just to, yeah. just to finish up, one thing I didn't realise when I first watched the show growing up after the Cold War, I guess, was that watching it as an adult now and knowing certain parts of that history, more of the Cold War influence is evident in the storytelling. Was that something that you spoke about as a group at the time or was it self-evident or not evident at all? (laughs) I mean, I don't know how different in age we are, but was that because the more I watch it, particularly the episodes at the end of season four, there's a certain dread about the whole situation that kind of seems to come from that background. 
I think the ability of science fiction to be able to take those big, broad brushstrokes of good versus evil and how that manifests itself politically in terms of, as you said, arms races and factions and all those type of things can be applied to lots of different earthbound political scenarios. So we didn't specifically speak about the Cold War, so you know, emerging out of the late 40s into the right up to Perestroika, if you like, and maybe beyond. Uh, but those large themes are, are certainly there. Yeah, so not explicitly, but in terms of that you know, good versus evil, all that sort of beautiful, big, broad brushstroke stuff that you can do in science fiction, that was absolutely something that that we wanted to talk about. And what's this and what's this what's the little person's perspective in that? You know, we were just this group of people with this wider thing going raging on around us. And I think at, at times the show did a very good very good job of that, you know. Not seeming like the world on Moya was the entire universe. Like, no, no, we're just this small little thing playing out on the sideline of this much, much larger larger battle and I imagine that's how people felt during or feel during real wars or if they were players during the, the Cold War as well. Yes, this is happening on our block, but our block exists in this city, in this state, in this country, in this context. And that's um, an interesting perspective to take on board. Yeah, definitely. So I guess just before we finish up with the acting career stuff and I maybe ask a question I forgot to ask earlier, is there any particular scene that because I went and watched a bunch of your panel stuff today and I saw one really funny one where you, you said, we're not going to sit behind the uh, the table. I don't want to see people sitting behind the effing table. I'm not going to swear. <laughs> it was, I think it was from 2013. That was hilarious. I thought that was great. Yeah. Is there any particular scene that people still talk to you most about, whether that's from the castle or from Farscape? Because, I mean, there's one in Farscape at the end, obviously, of the normal series run that is kind of gut-wrenching, but... That's probably my personal favourite, but people, yeah, people talk about Dargo's, you know, Dargo's demise in the in Peacekeeper Wars. Absolutely, that's that's there. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but there seemed to be. Uh, wow, it's amazing the things you can't you can remember, isn't it? I think it's episode nine of series one. Wow, I, <laughs> I do not know why that number has popped into my brain. I mean, this has been a long time ago. But I think it was called Till the Blood Runs Clear, was it? And it's an episode where we cut off Pilot's arm to get what we want in season one. And it just seemed to be the birth of the show. At that point in time, there was something tonally there that was that was right. I mean, in, in Farscape, either explicitly or implicitly, there was always a battle between if you like, some people wanting to make it more um, family-oriented, which is not a criticism, you know, like uh, like I would say the new Lost in Space, you know, that, that sort of family. And there was other people that wanted to make what would become the remake of Battlestar Galactica. In other words, much more adult, much more complex. And that tension actually was a problem. And I think that was a healthy tension. Uh, that that was what sent some episodes too far in one direction and too far in the other direction. So you get some episodes, some scenes, some some moments that really are way too kidsy and tonally way too light. And you just wonder who who are we trying to play to here in this scene. And then conversely, you had scenes that were just way way too dark for that for what we were going for. So 
So no one really, and, and that, that was to do with, you know, people wanting it to be something that I always wanted to be darker and more adult. Um, but that, that's not saying I'm right. I was I'm probably most definitely, definitely wrong about that. Um, but you could just feel, um, feel that, feel that tension. Um, so that, that episode I'm talking about just seemed to, for me, just hit, hit the right tone. I think if we could have kept that flavor of, um, selfishness there's something so selfish about that act of cutting pilot's arm off and doing whatever it takes to get where where you want to go there seemed to be much um, much more interesting story to tell rather than oh we're abandoned brothers who've been abandoned at the end of the universe let's all bond together as great friends and go off and fight the bad guys no no no. we all see each other the, the show really rocked for me um, when we saw each other as competitors, challenges, obstacles to what it is we were doing. And there were moments where the relationship worked for us to get that, and there were moments where it worked against us. And that, for me, harked back to the best scenes of Blake Seven, this really old-school um, 70s British science fiction show, which I thought was amazing. And even though today the production values make it difficult to watch, the performances and the story arcs there in terms of uh, the main characters really at odds with each other was something that when Farscape emulated that, we, we, that was it. That for me, that were our best moments. It certainly was the first scene as a fan where you realize beyond the visual look of the show that you were truly watching a different kind of sci fi. What's it like when people are pushed yep. into situations where they have to act either? more in line with their underlying character or completely work against it, whether when there's actual trade-offs. Because, I mean, a lot of sci-fi, yeah. even Star Trek at times, it never was self-evident that there was a real trade-off. <laughs> like, it just, yeah. it, it almost seemed pushed away a little bit because sometimes they were dealing with stuff that was way too big. But, yeah, cutting off someone's arm for the sake of finding your way home seems a little, you know, silly when you just say it like that, but it was a very powerful scene of, there's certain characters here that are okay with this and certain characters that are getting pushed somewhere that they might not want to be. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I, I, I and I felt, um, I, I, I felt it was just, it was a great moment because of all the, you know, a lot of sci-fi elements are like being in a play where you fill in the blanks imaginatively, but because of the way the set was built and because of the size of it, walking onto set with pilot, uh, you felt like you were there with pilot. <laughs> but they were my favorite scenes to shoot on Farscape because you really felt you were in this room with this enormous because you couldn't see the puppeteers. You couldn't you couldn't even see them on set. So it was just absolutely amazing. Apart from the fact that it didn't have the real voice and you hear the click 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 of the animatronics as the puppeteers are working it. That was the only sort of imaginative coloring in you had to do. But visually it was just that whole set itself. Incredible. That, that pilot's whole room was just beautiful, wasn't it, really? <laughs> loved it. Absolutely loved it. My favourite set. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Anthony, I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for putting up with my ramblings. I'm exactly the same. So You get to know someone, I think, from their rambling. So, <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a really pleasurable um, conversation and, and brought back some great memories about things I haven't spoken uh, haven't thought about for a long time. So is there anything that you have going on creatively at the moment? Is there 
outside of work, obviously you're very busy, but do you have any, like you, we were talking about playing guitar earlier, you can join a band or? Yeah, the great thing for me is that, yeah, when Wayne Pargam and I had a band, Wayne Pargam's an actor who was in, played Scorpius in, in Farscape and an amazing actor. And we had a band me many moons ago while we were while we were doing Farscape and, and one of the amazing lighting guys from Farscape called Steve Edwards. He um, joined the band with Steve and I. So Steve, with excuse me, with Wayne and I. And so Steve and I have been writing songs together for the last six months and that's been really just so much fun. Awesome. Old men with loud guitars. That's that's what we are and I absolutely love it. Long, <laughs> long may it stay the same. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be an 80 year old making a shitload of noise nice. <laughs> with my right. guitars. That's my goal in life. Hopefully we have automated hearing aids by that point. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> can hold on to the guitar with both hands then. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Right. Well, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, hopefully that band comes to fruition because I might have to check it out. Oh, awesome, mate. That'd be great. Right. Thanks very much. Right. Okay. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Bye bye.